Welcome to Talkless Water, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Botler, and I'm your host for Talkless Water. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Texas with Water and the Texas Water Journal. Both publications are free. My guest today is Dr. John Sabin, director of the Tulane University Bywater Institute and professor in the Department of River Coastal Science and Engineering in Tulane's School of Science and Engineering, which is located in New Orleans. John, welcome and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. Thanks for having me, Todd. So let's start out with your, your background in water. How did you, I guess, decide uh, or realize, hey, you're going to make water your career? That's a really good question. And it's not a linear path and nothing in my career has been linear. So um, I'll try to make it brief. But, um, you know, I grew up fishing in Colorado, trout fishing, uh, fly fishing and headwaters of the Colorado, headwaters of the Rio Grande, headwaters of the South Platte. Um, and so I've always had a connection to, to rivers through, through fishing. And, um, and so, um, sometime in, in my undergrad career, um, I was pursuing a pre-med degree and, and I found a, uh, flyer in a stairway that said, Hey, come work with Dr. David Lodge's group. Uh, we'll teach you how to scuba dive and learn about ecosystems in the North lakes of Wisconsin. And I was like, huh, I think I'll do that. So I went um for the interview and 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 got the job and and never looked back really because I didn't know at that time that you could make a career out of out of studying fresh water and and um but then fast forward um many many years after a degree in fisheries at Washington a degree in ecology river ecology at UC Berkeley a couple of postdocs I landed in Arizona um and I went there to study something that I thought was probably um, probably happening there. And when I got there, I realized that um, that water limitation overrode just about every other process. Um, and so I started studying water um, in two different ways: one in in rivers, and and the other in the nearby riparian ecosystems in 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 the desert and and Water limitation is important there. Flooding and and what ecologists call disturbance is important in, in rivers. And I kind of followed both of those paths. And the second one in particular kind of led me to the field of hydrology. And, and I have a strong background in statistics um, and modeling. And so I just sort of naturally drifted into statistical hydrology. And then that went one step further and one step further. And now I, I study water. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to say, um, you know, I, I kind of had a similar beginning uh, because I was, uh, you know, a big uh, waterfowl hunter, um, still am, but when I was young and a uh, fly fisherman. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you did mention northern New Mexico in the late 70s or early 80s. My dad took uh, everybody in the family, my brother, my mom and I, to the Fenwick Fly Fishing School at Bermejo Park, wow. which is now, uh, you know, Ted Turner's, I think Ted Turner had bought that area. And, uh, you know, this was before he bought it and it was really, really raised. And I, you know, I think there have been enormous changes there, but uh, I remember fishing up there and, you know, learning how to fly fish and kind of, you know, beginning my, you know, real journey with water myself, kind of in a similar fashion. Oh, cool. So, so you were in Arizona at Arizona State University. And so I know um, from uh, some of the things I've read uh, in Forbes magazine that you write for um, about uh, the Colorado River and what's going on out west. Um, I'm doing a, a study for a organization called Texas 2036 on water markets. And I ran across one of your uh, articles in Forbes about uh, water markets in the Western United States. So, um, you know, I just wanted to make sure uh, I got some of your thoughts about what's going on on the Colorado uh, and where you think, uh, you know, they've got a uh, head 
to find some kind of solution out there eventually. Yeah. um, Well, an aside, and then remind me to get back to markets. um, And in particular, what, what I covered in that piece in Forbes, Um, I was just on Lake Powell on a houseboat for a week. um, And, and it's a beautiful place. It's, uh, it's like being in the Grand Canyon, but on a lake. Um, and so we were, you know, 30 miles from Marina, middle of nowhere, um, fly fishing, um, from a stand-up paddleboard for bass. Um, and, um, but the thing that, that was so eerie and, and, um, caused me a little bit of tension was, you know, here I was out in this beautiful recreation spot, you know, engineered recreation spot. Um, but the signs of decline are so huge. Um, and we've seen this in headlines and in, um, you know, almost centerfold pictures showing Lake Mead, uh, the downstream reservoir in decline with the bathtub ring, they call it. Right. Um, Lake Powell has that now. And, you know, that system is interconnected and, um, it's, it's, um, it, it's so remarkable that you can actually see the decline every year marked in the sand, uh, on the beach, um, almost like tree rings. Right. Um, right. And, and so that was, um, you know, it caused me a bit of tension because I love to enjoy the West and, and what it has to offer. And certainly that lake and, and its recreational opportunities are, are fabulous. But I, you know, I wondered sort of out loud a couple of times, I wonder how many people here know that there's a possibility that this recreational opportunity may not exist as it exists today. Um, and, and that got me thinking about, you know, the Colorado system and, and especially the lower two reservoirs, which are so important for the lower basin states, uh, their water supply for farms, for cities, for industry, for energy. Uh, the hydropower that the two produce is, is not insignificant, um, certainly is a constant source of, of uh, renewable energy in the face of you know, what are otherwise intermittent sources of renewables like wind and solar. Um, and it got me wondering... You know, we're thinking about this um, from the context of demand, probably more than supply. And certainly there are supply proposals, too, in in the, you know, the greater negotiations for within the Colorado Compact, like let's build a desal in Mexico and trade them for their water. Um, You know, let's build another reservoir in California. That's part of... um, the California governor's water plan for California. Um, you know, and, and those are, those are supply, um, solutions that, that just aren't that creative. Right. I mean, build another dam. We've done that 75,000 times in the U S right. and we're still in the same place. Right. Um, and so it got me thinking about supply, um, and that the issue is really a supply issue. Um, and, it's going to be really hard to solve because if you look at those rings in the sand, they go down every year. You can see when it infills, you know, there's some supply coming in, but the, the net is a decline every year. And um, that's not going to change in the foreseeable future. So I think we need to be thinking outside of the reservoir, outside of the box for other creative uh, supply solutions, especially those um that are less centralized, right? That's a big centralized storage facility for the whole region. And it depends on activities in the entire basin, hard to manage. Whereas if we think about sort of distributed creative storage projects that are more local, um, we may be able to create supplies that, that um, in effect diminish the need for reducing Lake Powell and Lake Lake Mead's levels. And we can get to some of that further on because I know we had um, we had some ideas about talking about green infrastructure and things like that. So I think we could come back to that. But I mean, the, the, the upshot is we can do all we want in conservation, but as long as there's not supply coming in, the lake's still going to be declining. And so we've got to figure out the supply side and we've got to think about 
what that looks like at the scale of Lake Mead, but maybe in a distributed way across all the lower basin states. Right, right. Well, um, you know, it's a real contrast what you're doing now. I mean, you've left uh, the west and the and the desert, and you've gone to New Orleans, uh, where I've mentioned this probably half a dozen times. People are probably tired of hearing this on the podcast. That's where my wife was, where she was working when uh, I first met her, and we got married, and I was a part-time resident for a couple of years uh, before we moved back to Austin. But uh, uh, you're now at the Bywater Institute at Tulane. Tell us about that institute and tell us about that, that change for you, because that's, that's certainly a, a, quite a, a, a contrast in terms of the, the water side, you know, an area that never seems to have enough water and area that always seems to have too much. Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It was, um, you know, I spent 18 years at ASU and I loved every minute of that time. And and um, and like I said, I was just in um, Arizona enjoying a piece of Arizona that that I still hold close to my heart. Uh, the Tulane opportunity was a fabulous opportunity for me for a number of reasons. Uh, the first was the one that you mentioned. I had spent close to 20 years studying water scarcity in a in a place that has very little water and and really wanted to expand um my breadth of knowledge into a domain where there's way too much water and often of of too low quality to 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 deal with at least from a healthy community healthy ecosystem point of view right um and and also the mississippi is kind of like the big kahuna right um, you know, I always, as a kid, wanted to go to the Amazon check. I did that as a Fulbright fellow, um, I've been on the Mekong. Um, I've been on big rivers in China, um, but, but never really spent that much time thinking about studying the biggest river in North America. Um, you know, it's a river that drains more than 30 U S states and two Canadian provinces. So it's, you know, it's heartland, um, it's the, in many ways, the EKG or the heartbeat of, of commerce and of, of, of middle America. Um, so that was a challenge that, that I very much wanted to take on. And then the second piece was Tulane. Um, Tulane has, uh, four research institutes that are supported through the vice president for research office and, and centrally, even in the president's office. Um, three of them are medical. Tulane has a medical school and a strong school of public health and social work. Um, the other one is Bywater. And Bywater is um, the Research Institute on Environment with a focus on water because we're surrounded by water in New Orleans. And, and we're at the mouth of the Mississippi River, the biggest river in North America. And so in many ways, environment is water for us. And so the challenge that... Um, Bywater takes on is studying water in the co- in the context of of climate change, especially um, impacts and adaptation uh, side of that. Well, I know Tulane is a great university. My dad got his medical degree from there right after the Second World War, and my wife got her MBA there. Um, and I've spent a lot of time there. I actually. Um, spoken at a conference there that allowed me to get over and see my wife when we were dating. I remember it was like, Hey, you know, I got invited to go speak at Tulane. Well, that's an opportunity to, to go see my girlfriend. Uh, so I'm just curious about this. Now, how, how much time had you spent on the Mississippi, uh, before you, uh, went over to the Bywater Institute and is is becoming more familiar with it part of your transition? Are you, are you finding ways to go uh, and see portions of it that you hadn't seen before? Things like that? Definitely. That's a good question. Um, prior to moving to New Orleans, I had seen the Mississippi several times in, in Minneapolis, um, where the river is bigger than anything that we have in the West, right. Already mm-hmm. seen it in St. Louis. And I'd seen, uh, pieces of, of course, the Missouri, the, the Platte and the Arkansas from the West. Cause I grew up in Colorado and in the West, um, and a, and a bit of the Ohio. Um, so I had some familiarity with the system. Um, 
but never had um, more than um, a Mardi Gras experience in North in New Orleans. So, um, you know, getting to New Orleans and, and learning um, what the Mississippi, what the coast, um, what the other, um, other coastal rivers um, have uh, to do with, with culture and, and, livelihood in, in New Orleans is definitely part of, of my journey, my early journey with Bywater. And in fact, one story that I could give you with that is, um, I, I moved to New Orleans just before, uh, hurricane Ida, uh, two months before. And, and so that was my first hurricane. And I, um, I stayed in New Orleans for it. I live in a, um, apartment building on the 20th floor downtown. So I got to experience Ida from, from that viewpoint. Um, and, one of my early lessons, um, made two lessons from a hurricane experience like Ida. The first one is it's not necessarily what happens when the storm is upon you, but it's what happens and unravels after. Right. Right. So, you know, Katrina and Ida were completely different. Um, but nonetheless, the after was still, um, the part where, it hurts people in communities, right? No power, your roof got blown off, everything's wet, flooded. Um, it takes months, sometimes years for that to get fixed. I still see tarps from FEMA on one out of every 10 houses from my apartment down in the Lower Garden District. Um, and and that's something you don't hear about on the news, right? The news has this, this tempo that's you know, immediate to one week after. Right. And then if there's, you know, if it bleeds, it reads, if there's crisis or mismanagement of FEMA funds or something like that, then you hear about it again, maybe a year later, but you don't experience this, this, um, slow, um, exposure to disaster relief, which is probably the most important aspect of hurricanes that I learned about. Um, and yeah, so that, I know that doesn't have anything to do with the Mississippi River in, in terms of Ida. It certainly did in Katrina, um, but uh, but that's certainly a piece of of what I'm trying to pick up this first year. So my wife works for Entergy, and one of her jobs was to help coordinate uh, activities after hurricanes, uh, Isidore and another one. And uh, she left Entergy, and we sold her condo 45 days for Katrina. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty lucky. lucky. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Louisiana itself. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I started off uh, decades ago uh, uh, doing a little work for the EPA in the Region 6 office, which you know, is in Dallas and includes uh, Louisiana, and was working on some Section 404 permit. And, but I, when I was a kid, we would go to Lake Charles and, and go hunting. And I'm just, you know, uh, it's it's a strange kind of feeling when I look at a map of Louisiana, you know, not, not you know, Landsat image or something like that, but just an old map. And you see the outlines of the state, and then you see what the state looks like today from space. And it's it's remarkable how much land has disappeared under the Gulf. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, the causes and how much is gone, and, and, and then maybe about what uh, what's happening to try to arrest that uh, continual loss of wetlands. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I'll sketch kind of two um, local and, and, well, like at a high level, I'm a basin scale thinker. Um, so f f when I arrived at two, I'm going to come back to the coastal land loss in, in a moment here, but, um, when I arrived at Tulane, one of the things that I was most interested in, in developing research capacity and at Tulane and, and sort of a voice for New Orleans and Louisiana and is, is, um, the dead zone in, in the, the Gulf of Mexico and, and, and how one would go about, deciding what the best interventions are basin scale to, to remediate that, uh, because you, you have to look at the sources, um, right. some of which are in our own state. Um, but some of which are way far away, Iowa, Indiana, Minnesota, for example. Right. 
Um, so that's one big issue that I think um, I'm very interested in in trying to tackle with with um, with the Bywater team. The second is is um, integrating our research fa- um, capacities with um, both state and federal agencies working on coastal land loss and on on more broadly on natural infrastructure. Right. So we have um, an existing collaboration with the Army's Army Corps uh, ERDIC, ERDC on on green infrastructure. Um, they have a, a group called Engineering with Nature, and we work with with um, their team, um, not actually in Louisiana and other parts of the U.S., but but eventually we hope to do that in Louisiana as well. Um, and the second at the state level, um, the state has. Um, a coastal master plan, um, which is designed um, to uh, fortify um, coastal and and riparian floodplain ecosystems to try to abate what what we're seeing, which is massive coastal land loss, right? Um, and so, integrating with um, the Coastal Protection um, and Restoration Authority at, in, in Louisiana CPRA is is high on my list. And I think um, there could be some fruitful avenues, I think, for um, for doing science and engineering um, that helps um, not only inform um, sort of uh, project readiness level, uh, but, but also... Um, helps manage those those newly created lands in an adaptive management framework, and I think those are those are types of of topics that uh, that are needed from the academic side, and I think would provide value um, outside of academia, especially in a in an operation that's as large as CPRA. So some of those programs uh, had been going on for for quite a while now i still i still get uh, even though uh, i'm not uh, working in any of those on the texas coast anymore i still get uh, notices uh, for meetings in louisiana and places like that uh, and i'm just curious has the rate of uh, wetlands loss along uh, coastal louisiana land loss is that is that rate diminished any or is it still about the same uh rate what what can you tell us about that i don't know that figure uh very precisely off the top of my head but it hasn't slowed down um Mm. and in fact i think during ida that was the first reconnaissance for for most ecologists was to go out and see how much how much was lost and so certainly as we as we see you know storm frequency and intensity increasing we had four cat four storms in 366 days ending with ida um we're gonna see um increased um increased loss there so no it's it's still a pressing issue and i think um you know but again i'm i'm learning this i'm i'm very new on the job and and um the marine and the coastal piece of this is a new topic for me because i'm mostly trained as freshwater a freshwater person so um but you know the if you haven't looked at it, the the coastal master plan is is um, an impressive document, an impressive effort, um, and in in many ways, I think a model for for how states should do restoration work, um, and and at the right scale. And so, you know, I think um, some of the projects that are proposed are, you know, some some would say biggest restoration project projects that that anyone has taken on the United States in history. So, uh, the, uh, that whole effort, you know, there's, uh, it's not just, uh, I guess, uh, governments and, uh, academic institutions, uh, you know, and environmental groups are working on that. It, it, it requires the, uh, participation of uh, corporations as well. Uh, I know that, you know there's a lot of oil and gas development in in the marshes there historically, uh, which is I guess one of the contributors. Uh, and there's also uh, you know 
issues upstream, right? Not in Louisiana. Uh, sediment that's being captured by dams upstream that, that doesn't uh, make its way downstream. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I've, I've heard about that. I don't know what the research says uh, about that. But it, it's it's a comprehensive effort that it's, is going to be required, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's an understatement. I mean, and I think that's why, um, you know, progress, rebuilding progress is slow. Um, projects are complex. They're huge. They require, um, you know, a lot of careful study, permitting, um, negotiations, um, you know, both, you know, across um, state and, and federal lines as well. So, um, you know, yes, they, they, they are complicated. Um, get back to your question about, about sediment. Um, I mean, that is the, the crux of the issue, right? How do we get, um, how do we get sediment and we have loads of it? Maybe we have less because of the dams upstream, you know, certainly the ones in the Missouri I'm thinking of, but, um, but still the Mississippi is a big river. There's a lot of sediment coming down. How do we get that sediment to the places we need it? Because right now we're, we're losing elevation. Um, and that's what makes those habitats susceptible to, to land losses is, um, when they're not renewed with fresh sediment every year. And so, um, to get back to your point about, um, business and businesses, engagement with it um there's certainly um there certainly is a role for that and we can come back to that um hopefully in a later time in this this conversation but i would flip the the conversation from um being part of the problem to um to the businesses actually need it for protection of their assets because a lot of their assets are outside of the flood protection system and so the only thing they have is natural infrastructure for that um, and so I think, you know, flipping, pivoting that conversation towards an opportunity for, for, you know, much more than license to operate into a conversation about this is about daily operations and about sustainability of business opportunity uh, is a really important one. We have, of course, uh, a Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that has been uh passed by Congress and signed by President Biden and is, a, I mean, for water supply, you know, and, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, issues related to that is, a, you know, it's just a huge sea change. Uh, how is that act, the also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, how is that playing a role or do you think will play a role in some of the work that's going to be going on in Louisiana. Well, so let's look at, um, at, I'm looking at Senator Cassidy's website right now and, and a summary of the IIJA. Um, and the bottom number is, is the most relevant. It doesn't mean it's the lowest at all. 2.13 billion for ecosystem restoration and resiliency funding. Um, you know, these are, these are this is money to to intervene to build stuff um to do and in some cases to do research on what should be built um what else do we have we have um uh looking through here um there's money in here for um for nutrient management, right? We talked about the dead zone before. There's mm -hmm. money for Lake Pontchartrain, for restoration on Lake Pontchartrain. There's um, 2.5 billion, I think, in here for weatherization in low-income communities. Um, you know, and that's that's exactly what I was talking about about the after effects of Ida, right? Um, you know, housing security and housing security in the context of climate adaptation. Uh, it's a really important um, pursuit. So yeah, there's um, there's a lot I think here um, that's interesting and and appropriate to our mission at Bywater for sure. So there's a, a definitely part of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure act a a move to fund green infrastructure and to see the use of green 
infrastructure more often instead of uh, the construction of dams or levees. So why don't you tell us a little bit about green infrastructure and and uh, the role it may play with the work that's being done along the coast. Right. Well, rebuilding coastlines is natural infrastructure, right? And so that, that one is, um, you know, I think it's well understood that, that our coastlines and especially healthy intact ecosystems on our coastlines help slow down storms um, and protect our other infrastructure assets um, especially in industry and especially residential, right? Um, and potentially even energy. I mean, I, the biggest out that you were talking about your wife's former role in energy, the, the, the biggest impact of Ida was, was on the power grid on, um, on power uh, provisioning. So, um, so certainly that's, um, a core effort in, in the state of Louisiana. It's the mission of CPRA. Um, it's, um, very encouraging to see a state with a plan like that. Um, you know, pivoting back to to other states um, that I've worked in in the West, and and back to Lake Powell and that discussion about Lake Powell. That was a massive project, right? Um, but it's only a little bit older than I am, um, and it was built in an era of optimism about water. Uh, it was built. Um, without foresight about, well, what happens when it doesn't work anymore? Um, and I, I don't want to be an alarmist and say, we're not going to have those reservoirs ever again. Um, you know, there could be, you know, <laughs> atmospheric rivers for the next, uh, three years that come right over Colorado and fill those reservoirs up. I mean, that's always a possibility, but I think, we have to be thoughtful and have some 50-year vision about what the alternative to Lake Powell might look like. Um, is green infrastructure enough for that? Um, is natural infrastructure not enough for that? I like to think so. And the reason I like to think so is not because I think we're going to have, we're going to build back all the wetlands that have been lost in the United States in the next 50 years. Right. It's because we have aquifers that are empty. Um, and those aquifers are natural infrastructure. And so we have to be very innovative and forward thinking about how we use those assets uh, and play the long game um, for the next drought if this one gets alleviated, right? So that we're not draining Lake Powell and Lake Mead to get to where we need to be. And we're not playing the demand management when the supply is really the problem. If we have underground storage as a diverse portfolio with those you know, with those reservoirs, then when we don't have the reservoir, we go to the, the, the more distributed below ground storage to meet, make ends meet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, so listeners of this podcast will, uh, you know, recognize that, uh, you know, I frequently talk about aquifer storage and recovery and the, the project that the city of San Antonio has, uh, and the city of El Paso and the, the roles that, that those projects have played uh, for those communities. And it just makes me think a little bit about, you know, we have so many more tools, it seems to me today, than when I first started working in this field and when my mentor started working in this field and was uh, here in Texas, but was around Floyd Dominey when he was running reclamation in the 60s and all. And uh, it's not it's not just, uh, you know, aquifer storage and recovery and, and, and projects like that, uh, you know, desalinated brackish groundwater. It's also, you know, getting back to our earlier discussion about markets, you know, different ways in which we can uh, use water um, to change our behavior, to, to change, you know, how we value water. And so, you know, I always kind of start from the point that uh, water is undervalued. And, you know, I'll go to the uh, various venues uh, and everybody will be falling over themselves to say, oh, water is so valuable. And, you know, well, you know, yes, it is. But, uh it's not that value is not reflected in how we use it. 
and what we charge for it and, and, you know, a number of other things. And so, you know, we do have a sense of its value, but, but that value is not reflected in our uh, use and management of it. Um, talk a little bit, if you would, about, uh, you know, the, I guess, you know, the kinds of changes in terms of our behavior that we're going to have to embrace, especially in the West. Uh, before I let you go on that, you know, of course, you're familiar with the story of uh, John Wesley Powell, you know, who was leading the U.S. Geological Survey and, and went down the Colorado River and, uh, in the late after the Civil War and uh, advised Congress, uh, don't think we should probably, you know, try to irrigate this area out here is just too dry. Uh, well, you know, a lot of great things have come from what has been done in the irrigation uh, that went forward anyway. But, uh, you know, the question is, what's it going to be like going in the future? And so I, I'm just curious what you, you think about, you know, is the West, do you see the West? This is a long rambling question. You, do you get the sense that, that, People in the Western United States really are recognizing things are different now, and we need to figure out a way to do things differently. Well, I mean, that was kind of my tension at Lake Powell. Was, um, you know, do, do does the casual tourist, either from the West or the East or a different part of the U.S. who's visiting Lake Powell, view this as an inconvenience because, you know, maybe beach spots are less frequent or there's more hazards in the lake or, or as a signature of something much larger. Right. right. And, and it's certainly the latter. I mean, the former is true too, but, um, you know, that, that, that tension was strong for me and, and, you know, behavior is, it, I think, you know, getting back to my, you know, my point earlier about it's a supply, not a demand problem there is a piece of it that's demand you know a, a big piece of it and i and i think you know the the easiest way to summarize it is that in in the western us we have to focus on quality growth not quantity you know as a as a big picture pursuit um and that quality is is going to be driven by innovations um like hydrogen created from wastewater um you know, instead of using fresh water to do it or um, using natural infrastructure to capture stormwater in monsoons and hurricanes and you know, Pacific hurricanes in atmospheric rivers and put that in places that we haven't traditionally relied on, um, like groundwater. Um, and so those are you know, it, the behavior changes, I think, are more um, that are more needed are, are kind of a... Um, quality growth you know there's only limited resources because it's supply driven it's always going to be that way um therefore we've got to try to harvest as much as we can from those limited molecules of water um in all aspects of life in the west and the second i think is um is something that i really hope to do um especially in now in the mississippi but i can also think about ways to do it in the west but i think educating the public on on the complexity um the complexity is the wrong word though the the richness of the water system and and how we use it and how we manage it is really important and it's that's sometimes so arcane that it's hard to explain um you know in a in a forbes article for example right because it's a short piece um so we have to you know, as educators, and this is, you know, something that I'm really passionate about, figure out ways to communicate that um, and communicate visions for the future that are different um, until they become narratives. And then once they become narratives, then maybe they become policy. Um, but, but the ideas, you know, need to be flowing and they can't be things like and I wrote about this in Forbes last week. They can't be things like let's build a canal from the Mississippi to the to Lake Mead. And, you know, and I have to say this: interrupt you for a second. You say William Shatner started a a GoFundMe page for that, and 
it was only what thirty billion dollars or whatever it said. Kickstarter, I think. Yeah. And and Shatner, God bless him. Um, but you know, I mean, those, those sorts of solutions they're going to alienate people. You take water from it's going to be a big fight. They're fraught with all kinds of um, disaster proneness. Um, and then at the end of the day, they just fuel quantity growth, not quality right. growth, right? Right. Well, they don't change behavior. Right. And so then you're 20 or 30 years later, you're looking for the next big diversion from someplace, right? Right. Exactly. And then pivoting back to the, the conservation piece and, and the demand side of things, efficiency is fabulous and we need to have more of it. It does lock you in to certain things, right? If you, if, So I think we need to be innovative both on the on the demand side and on the supply side so that we have portfolios that we can go to when we need them. Uh, groundwater certainly be being um, a mismanaged, forgotten, um, uh, direly in need of, of rediscovery resource, right? That empty piece of the aquifers. It's like, oh, oh God, that's terrible. No, it's an opportunity. Right. All right. The... Uh uh, you know, just kind of looking at you know, the situation of groundwater out west. You know, I'm always a little, uh, you know, surprised when I think about that, you know, California is kind of coming to the groundwater management, um, uh, you know, uh, place. I don't even yeah. know what word I was going to use here. You know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, uh, they're, they're kind of getting into it late, uh, but they but with Sigma, um, you know, they do have uh, a program to do that. But uh, but even there, I think, you know, some of those aquifers, the regulation is not going to, the actual regulation of the aquifers is not going to start for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, is it, um, is it too late now? Um, you know, it was, I think, it's going to be widely recognized in 20 years that it was visionary, just like the Groundwater Management Act of Arizona uh, that that uh, then Governor Babbitt put into place in 1980 in Arizona was visionary, right? We were in Arizona. I'm saying we. I don't. I only live in Arizona one week a month, but um, but Arizona was, you know, almost four decades ahead of California in that space, um, and and has sacked away a lot of groundwater. Um, and so there is a diverse portfolio and we may have to turn to it this year. Right. Um, so I think, you know, those are the kinds of forward thinking innovations we need. And I think Sigma falls into that category. How you get there is a, is another story, but California has an asset that Arizona doesn't, New Mexico doesn't, uh, most of the States East of the Sierra don't have, and it's that they have on occasion, super wet winters. Right, atmospheric rivers, snowpack, um, and even even if that snowpack is becoming rain, they still have massive quantities of water. Occasionally, that water needs to be directed underground somehow. Um, you know, another reservoir will will uh, provide a stopgap, um, but it won't, you know, change behavior like we were talking about before. Um, but really envisioning how we're going to restore aquifers in California, I think, would be um, you know, which interventions we're going to use to get there and, and, and also how they're going to get funded, um, is certainly important for that. Um, and, um, yeah. Well, you're still close enough. I'm wondering, have you heard any scuttlebutt about, um, whether the states are going to come to some kind of agreement on what to do in the short term? I know they had a deadline that they had missed. And uh, the uh, the bureau stepped in and took some action, maybe not action that everybody was expecting them to take. But uh, you know, my my assumption is there there's still ongoing discussions among the states about how they are going to cut back. Was it two to four million acre feet uh, for next year? Yeah, I'm not tied into those negotiations, and you know, I certainly had colleagues at ASU who know that that scene much better than I do. But again, I would just say um, we're going to need the some of that water every year, 
And unless we don't have supply, it's still going to be declining, maybe by less. Maybe the tree, you know, the tree rings will be smaller instead of mm-hmm. three feet in one year. Um, and so, and again, I think, you know, the solutions are, are much more distributed and much more state by state, right? What, what can we do as each of us, each of the states to create local supply from increasing variation in, in hydroclimate, I think is the, is the most important question. Well, I, I, you've probably seen this study came out recently that looked at the decline of snowpack across the West. Uh, and I was pretty shocked by how much it declined. I mean, at 50% or more in some places since what, 1955, uh, I think it was. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I saw that and that really, to me, that really brought home, and and I wonder how uh, how many people have actually uh, you know heard about that study or seen the results because you I mean you can't look at that and I mean of course this is just measurements right you know every year since fifty five uh, you can't look at that and, and not conclude boy something is really different now for sure um, and maps are powerful that way as showing you know, regional system level change. I mean, I've experienced that personally because I grew up in Colorado and I remember school being canceled for three foot snowdrift blizzards, you know, and those just don't happen anymore. Um, I remember snowpack at Wolf Creek at 140 inches. That's not happening anymore. Um, You know, ski seasons into May and June, that's not happening anymore. Um, You know, so that's, that's, you know, just some, some personal data points and observations over a lifetime. Um, but on the flip side, we do have sort of increasing variation in, in supply, right? Um, and it's in space and time, so it's hard to make sense of, right? So yet massive floods in Yellowstone this year, you know, in a decade ago or two decades ago, a big fire because of drought. So, you know, that's, that's in the same place. Right. And in California uh, over the course of, you know, two or three years, you might have, you know, massive, like I said, atmospheric river generated rainfall and snowpack. Um, and then severe drought for two years following that Texas has the same, right. Uh, right. Hurricane Harvey and then drought. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but, you know, our game is, is to game those extremes. You know, that's the new supply is figuring out how to safely and, and cleverly game those extremes so right. that we protect people from the highs and at the same time store some of it for the lows. Yeah. There's a, there's a real need, uh, for diversification and water supplies for, for big cities. Uh, you know, my, you know, own research, you know, there are a lot of cities, I'm not going to name one, not, not going to name them, but, you know, in our state that have lots of surface water reservoirs. And uh, the kind of droughts that we've been experiencing uh, the last few decades, you know, they're really not confined to one basin. They usually end up impacting a much larger area. And so the strategy of, you know, really being able to rely on reservoirs and other basins uh, during these types of droughts is, uh, is, is not playing out, uh, I think, the way it was envisioned. And so the, uh, you know, the emphasis, I wish, was more on diversification instead of just, you know, the creation of additional supplies. But, but we'll see. You know, there are people thinking and talking about this. And, um, you know, hopefully we will see uh, not only in Texas, but other Western states, you know, a real um, emphasis on on trying to diversify these war supplies and, and build resilience into them. So Agreed. we're going to start to wrap up here, but I want to ask you um, how people can find out more about the Bywater Institute and You've got a podcast. I can't believe this. Another podcaster. Um, uh, you can even tell them the name of your podcast and what you talk about. I am like, just happy for you to do that. It doesn't bother me at all. And maybe a little bit about um, your, your articles at Forbes. 
Sure. Thanks. And, and we'll have to do the reverse. I'll have to have you on, um, on my podcast at some point, that would be a treat. Um, so the website for Bywater is, um, Bywater, B-Y-W-A-T-E-R.Tulane.edu. It's, um, it's a, um, holdover website from the previous Bywater and we will be updating it on World Water Day, March 22nd. So there'll be a new version of it then. Feel free to tune in now. It's got information about Bywater there. Um, the podcast is Audacious Water. And it's on all the the major podcast um, outlets, iTunes, etc. Um, and the Forbes uh, column, if you just Google Sabo and Forbes, it'll come up. And and uh, there's uh, we have I have an article maybe twice a month there um, covering topics of Western water um, and um, the Mississippi, um, also covering topics about water equity. Um, and occasionally about green energy, green hydrogen, and the intersection between green energy and water. Um, so yeah, those are, those are those sites. And thanks for that, that soundbite. Well, listen, I, Hey, I'm impressed. I, I went back and looked at the Forbes website, uh, to just take another look at that water markets article that you wrote, I think in the spring. And there are five or six other articles at least. And I was, that's a, I mean, that's a lot of effort to, you know, produce two of those a month. So, um, you're producing at a high rate. So I commend you. Thank you. Yeah. That, there's like, we, we've talked about this, even this month there, there were way more topics that I wanted to cover than I could write articles about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a busy month in water and it often is sometimes it's a drought and you have to, um, you have to think, um, a little bit more innovatively about, about things you haven't covered yet. Great. Great. John, thank you for joining us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Todd. This has been Talkless Water. My guest today was Dr. John Sabo, director of the Tulane University Bywater Institute and professor in the Department of River Coastal Science and Engineering in Tulane School of Science and Engineering. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And to say that if you enjoyed this episode of Topless Water, please let us know by giving it a like. That's, and I say us because I, I rarely remember to do this, but I want to shout out to Anna Huff, who puts every one of these episodes together and puts them on the web. And uh, I really appreciate all that she's done to, to uh, you know, make Topless Water um live and and bring it to life. So thank you, Anna. My name's Todd Butler. Let's talk water again soon.